You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, once again, good morning to all of you. So glad that you are with us. There are a number of you I don't recognize, so I'm assuming you're our guests. Really, on behalf of everybody around you, welcome. We really are glad that you are here with us. All of us, including myself, were guests at one time. And so if there's anything we can do to help you find deeper community here, settle in here, what have you, would you please let one of us know? Um, we just we have a great morning ahead of us, and I'm anxious to, to get into it. Because here at Grace, we're about loving God, loving people, reaching people, and developing people. And we just want to quickly talk about um, a couple ways we're doing that in the life of our church. So we have um, a couple things for kids coming up in particular. We have an epic game night coming up on Friday, October 7th, and it's going to be epic. Thank you. And we also have Trunk or Treat coming. You may have seen the banner go up by the street this last week, but um, this is an outreach that we're going to do on Halloween. And I, I don't know how many people came last year. It was the first year we did it. I'd guesstimate 800 to 1,000 people. I mean, it's, we ran out of candy. We were out robbing Fred Meyer for more candy. <laughs> I didn't say that. We were out getting more candy. But, you know, because we ran out. I mean, it was a fantastic problem to have. So we bring these things up in particular that, yes, they're for kids, but they're also for you because we really want to see the value of being a bringing and an including community go deeper as a church. And there are a number of you who so get this and already do this, but we'd like you to constantly be in the thinking as a community about how we extend community and invite others into community. Um, who are you inviting to come with you to church? I know some of you did that this morning. Some of you are here as guests because you're with someone who brought you here. We love, we love that. But if you didn't bring someone here this morning, we hope that when you're here, you would look around and you would look to extend community to those around you. Just engage them in your conversation and just, just include them. We just want to see this become more of a value for us as a church family. And in particular, as you think about friends, coworkers, kids in the neighborhood, those kids are more than welcome to come. This isn't just for our grace kids. This is for all kids. So we hope that you'll be thinking through that lens as we uh, look forward to those things together. So just real quickly, I want to catch you up on something else going on in the life of our church, and that's with some of our staff. In particular, one of our staff families, um, Rhonda and Matt Patrick, both serve on our pastoral staff here at Grace. And as many of you know, Rhonda left for a leave of absence this last summer, and she has since come back, and we love the fact that she's back with us. But we just want you to know that she's come back in a modified role. She's chosen to come back in a 24-hour-a-week role, and she's focusing exclusively on being our pastor of small groups and pastor of communities at Grace. So you're going to see her around. In fact, she's in the room. I won't point her out because she'll never talk to me again if I do that. But we love her and we're so glad that she's back. But also with Matt, um, you're not going to see Matt for a while and there's good reason for that. Um, for many years, the elders have wrestled with um, creating some kind of sabbatical opportunity, sabbatical policy for our long-tenured staff. And we have several here um, on our ministry staff who have been with us a lot of years. And so, especially coming out of COVID, we wanted to get that across the finish line, and we did. And so we have a sabbatical policy now, process, that is available for any of our full-time pastoral staff or full-time ministry support staff who have been with us seven years or more. So the first one by seniority is... 
Matt Patrick, who's been here 20 years. So we have blessed Matt to go on sabbatical, and it started today. So you won't see him today. And you won't see him until January, and that's by design. We said, go away, get rejuvenated, replenished, refreshed, and come back. And so that's the plan. So um, you're going to see a succession of our pastoral staff begin to take these sabbaticals with blessing. And again, the elders crafted this in such a way that we're not sending them away to write a book or create a class or, you know, go to a bunch of seminars. The sole focus is for them to rest and replenish and renew. And, um, and we're very excited to be able to swing that into motion. So if you don't see Matt around here very much in the next three months, it's because he's on sabbatical. But he'll be back in January, and we're looking forward to that. So I just wanted you to know about that. The other thing is when we celebrate communion as a church family, especially with those of you who are newer to our church family, um, we also like to call attention to one of the ways that you can give to the mission and vision here at Grace, and that is through our fellowship fund. And these resources go exclusively to helping people in our church family or even, even in the community who find themselves in a hard place. People lose jobs. They have difficulties that come up. These resources literally put food on the table for people, turn utilities back on, repair cars, pay medical bills. All that's done in the name of Jesus, and it all comes out of this fund in particular, the fellowship fund. So as we celebrate what God has given to us, and as we think about giving to the mission and vision, that's another way that you can give is to our fellowship fund. So I just want to thank the Lord for the resources he's given us, and then we're right into his word together. So let's pray one more time. Lord, again, we thank you that you are the God who has been generous towards us. That's why you call us to be generous people, because you're generous towards us. And we want to be generous in each and every way. And I thank you that this church family is the real deal. They are generous because they live and love like you do, Lord. And so we thank you for the resources you've entrusted to us. We pray that as an act of worship, we would generously give a portion of that back to the mission and vision, to the fellowship fund, so that more people can be introduced to you, so that your gospel can go forward and your kingdom can advance. And we thank you that we get to be a part of all that. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So as we dive into God's word, I, I felt like it was necessary and important for us to talk a little bit about this. Do you know what that is? That's a hurricane and a big one. That's Hurricane Ian when it was pummeling the country of Cuba. Imagine 11 million people, an entire country being without power. That is what happened to Cuba. It completely leveled their electrical grid. And this is the picture of it from space as, as it was headed towards its arc towards Florida. And it basically traveled the length of Florida. 2.6 million people out of power going into this weekend. Boats sitting up on streets. And this isn't even the, the, the most, um, I think, illustrative picture I could have grabbed. After I grabbed this one, I saw several that showed like hundreds of boats, you know, up on land and sitting in the middle of buildings and cars flipped over. And it's just, it's crazy the damage that that storm did. Destroyed infrastructure. Over 50 people um, are, are, are dead. And they're expecting to, unfortunately, that number to grow. I mean, it's just huge. But let me ask you this. How many of you know someone or are connected to someone, family, friend, acquaintance, whatever, who lives in Florida or who lives in the path of this hurricane? Yeah, virtually all of us, many of us. So we thought it was very necessary for us just to stop and pray because crisis things like this are a chance for the church to be the church. 
And that's exactly what we want to pray for, is for God to use this in that way. So would you join me as we pray for the folks who have been impacted by this hurricane? Lord, we see these pictures, and they're just overwhelming. They're almost numbing. It's just hard to understand the level of destruction that's happened on the other end of our country and just the lives that have forever been impacted by that. Lord, we pray that your church will be the church, that we will be able to step forward and be your hands and feet to meet real needs. Lord, I'm, I'm so encouraged and grateful for the many stories of Jesus followers inserting themselves into the wake of this crisis to help and to give hope and to be there. Lord, would you give us wisdom as a church? How can we meaningfully help? What can, what can we do? And Lord, we're reminded once again that we don't have as much control over our lives as we think we do. We are reminded, I'm personally reminded again, I need you. I am dependent upon you. We all are. And we thank you for your grace and mercy and your presence with us here this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know that we live in a, in a culture of the never-ending news cycle, and this is big news, right? For three or four days or maybe a week, and then it's on to the, on to the next thing. But this is what people have been talking about, and understandably so, this last week. This is, this is a big deal. I mean, there's been a, a necessary buzz about this. I mean, a number of us know people or are connected to people who have been impacted by this hurricane. And it's the same vibe that we enter into as we enter into, once again, the Gospel of John this morning. And if you haven't been with us, we've just started this, this study on the Gospel of John. So your timing's perfect. We're only a couple weeks into it. And in this part of the story, there's a buzz going on, and everybody's talking about it, that there's this dude named John out in the desert near the Jordan River who's baptizing people and making all sorts of claims and saying all sorts of things, and people are talking about it. Droves of people are going out to see what's going on and to hear what he's saying and to be baptized by him. And so there's, there's a lot going on with this. So as we enter into this story, understand that's what's going on. That's the background. And what I'd like you to watch for as I read these verses to you out of this chapter is what is revealed about the identity of John, but what's also revealed about the identity of Jesus. And that's what we'll be working at, working with and looking at here this morning. So let me read this to you. This is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now he's reaching back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 42, and quotes it and says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, there is a lot lurking within these verses, and we'll just begin to work our way through the story here and peel back some layers. So it says that headquarters sent some people to go check this out. So in Jerusalem was the spiritual epicenter of the nation. There was a, a court there, functionally a court, basically their version of a Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. And it was their job to address issues just like this. One of their roles was to determine if someone was a true or false prophet. And here's this guy named John out in the desert doing all this stuff. Of course they're going to check into it. And so they send a representation out to ask him. And I wish we could have been there to hear tone because I, I just bet, we don't know this for sure, but I just bet there was a tone to this. Who do you think you are? Who are you? And it's so interesting because we know historically that as this was going on, there were all sorts of false messiahs who were beginning to present themselves. Someone would appear on the scene, they'd get a following, and the Roman government would brutally, you know, basically kill all of them or imprison them, and that'd be the end of it. But there was this, there was this hunger, there was this desire for God's promised one, the chosen one, the Messiah, to come. And people were anxiously looking and waiting and watching expectantly. And you had all these people, all these false messiahs who kept coming forward. This is historical fact. You can go back and look at it. Who would present themselves as the Messiah and it turned out they weren't. And in many ways we can't blame the people for their hope. In fact, we commend them for it. But they were looking in particular for a political Messiah. The Roman Empire was so hated and life was so difficult and they were so brutally subjugated. They just wanted out and they longed for a political leader to come and solve all their problems. Can you relate to that? Do we ever look for a political messiah? What country have you been living in? Yes. And it happens every election cycle. I know we got the midterms coming here next month. But there is this fervor, this desire for someone to come and solve at least some of our problems, not create more problems. How about we solve some of our problems? Let's get the right people, the right person in power, and, and we'll get some things taken care of. And obviously, there's some truth to that. There, there's, we need to solve our problems as much as we can, and we need wise, good leadership, and wise, good leadership does make a difference. But what are we looking to the political process for? Because they were looking for, in many ways, a political savior. But in fairness to them, they had a lot of things they were trying to figure out. In the Old Testament, there were a number of messianic figures that were prophesied and promised. There was the promise of a king who would come in many places, Jeremiah 33 being one of them. In Deuteronomy 18, it talks about this prophet who will be like Moses, who will come and be the great prophet. And if you read that in context, it, it's really describing a number of prophets who did and would come. But there was this expectation of a great prophet. In Joel chapter 2, a great teacher of righteousness would reveal himself and he would come and there would be no one like him. And then, and we'll 
celebrate communion out of one of these passages, but you have this picture of a suffering servant in Isaiah who will come and suffer on behalf of the people and ultimately rescue the people through his suffering. And then in Daniel 7, you have this amazing picture of this preeminent, powerful figure that comes and is worshipped. And all nations, all peoples worship him. And that sounds a lot like God. That's God's job to be worshipped. But, but anyway, you have this figure. And all this is going to be announced by Elijah. The Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with a promise that before Messiah comes, Elijah will come to prepare the way for him and to announce his coming. And so there were all these figures that they were trying to figure out who was who and who's going to come and when are they going to come. And what they didn't realize is as you look at this against the lens of Scripture like we can now, especially that this is talking about Jesus. Not many messiahs, one. Jesus fulfills every single one of these. And to John's credit, he gets asked, so are you the guy? And he says, no. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? And interestingly, he says, no. And if we jump over to another gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it tells us that John came in the spirit of Elijah in the purpose of Elijah. But he wasn't a physically reincarnated Elijah like the people were expecting. They literally, because if you know your Bibles and you've heard this story, remember Elijah never died. A chariot of fire came down and took him up to heaven. He's one of the few people who never died. And so it was thought he's still alive, so he's going to come back. And they literally thought Elijah himself would come back. But John came in spirit and purpose of Elijah. And this is how he speaks to his identity. He quotes Isaiah 40, reaches back hundreds and hundreds of years and says this. And this can somewhat be a disconnect for us without what I think is some helpful background here. This language of make straight the way for the Lord would have made a lot of sense to anyone in the Near East. Because in Isaiah's time, there weren't a lot of roads. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, the Roman Empire comes and they put roads everywhere. But up to that point, roads were pretty scarce. And there were times when a king would come to visit his territory and they literally had to put in a road for him to get to it. And even if there was a road in existence, they had to clear it out and take care of it and revitalize it so that it was fit for a king. And what John is literally saying here is the king is coming. And I am building an autobahn. I'm building a highway ahead of him so that he can go right down the road into every human heart. That's, that's basically what he's, what he's saying here, and that's how he identifies himself. But they don't get it. They don't see it. And so they press him and say, well, why do you baptize? And I think what we have to appreciate is that this wasn't an everyday occurrence that someone would surface somewhere out in the wilderness of Israel and start baptizing people. It was just as weird then as it kind of feels weird now. This wasn't a common occurrence. There was one baptism, and that was for Jews. If you chose to become a Jew, converted to Judaism, you would walk down into a pool, immerse yourself, and walk out the other side, and that's how you showed that you were now going to be living like a Jew. So they didn't have multiple baptisms. So for John to be out doing this, we don't, we don't get it. And why are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah, or Elijah, or, or the prophet? And John comes back with this. The one who's coming after me, the straps of his sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. That was the job of the lowest of servants, was to untie someone's sandals. 
And John's saying he's not even qualified to do that? Wow. Because of who Jesus is. He says Jesus surpasses everybody. He's that great. Is he that great to you? Does he surpass everyone for me? I mean, there are a number of us here in the room, I know, because I know many of your stories, who say, yeah, I love Jesus, I know Jesus, I follow Jesus. That's great. Do you live your life like he surpasses you? Well, let's take that for a test drive. So we had necessarily a series on generosity, and you heard me praying about some of that earlier this morning. We're generous people as Jesus followers because we recognize Jesus has been generous to us. And living out a relationship with Jesus is always about what he's already done for you. We forgive people because he's first forgiven us. We love people because he's first loved us. We're generous to people because he's been generous to us. So we looked at money. We looked at relationships. um, We looked at stuff. But we also looked at time. And I would guess for most of you that if we were to press you on your most Precious commodity for many of you. Honestly, it would be for me. It would be my time. I'd say my time. Okay, so if Jesus surpasses your greatness, if he really is who he says he is, then how do you spend your time? How do you respond when he interrupts your time? When he interrupts your plans? When you are a busy person, which most, if not all of you are, I feel like I am, my life is full, and I have these things I'm going to get done, and all of a sudden, God interrupts it, how do I respond to that then? Well, wait a minute, if he's greater than I am, if he surpasses me, he's not really interrupting it, it's his time, right? Do you see the change in thinking and mentality? Or, or when it comes to just our expectations of God. You know, many of you know this, but many years ago, Jamie and I owned a vending machine business. And the great thing about a vending machine business is when it works, you put money in the machine and you get something out. Like, you get what you want. I want that. This is what I'll put in. This is what I'll get out. How many of us treat God that way? Like the divine vending machine. We say he's great, but do we treat him that way? See, really, this passage is about identity. John's identity, Jesus' identity, your identity, my identity. And I submit to you, you will only truly discover your true identity and live that identity when you recognize and respond to Jesus' identity. Because he is the source of our true identity. We looked at this in the opening sermon and Gary revisited again last week he's the logos he's the word he's our reason our rule our rationale our purpose for living and again I know that that can sound like such theological mumbo jumbo okay great whatever save that for Sunday morning but it's profoundly life changing and practical do you know what the number one question is that's being asked in our culture right now it's everywhere you cannot miss it Who am I? Or to put it another way, what's my identity? Or to put it another way, how do you identify? And I'm not talking about gender and sexuality. That's that's being asked in all the spheres of life. How, how, How do you identify? Who are you? 
And we have a couple generations now that are growing up in unprecedented times. Because what these younger generations are being told and what you and I are being told by our culture over and over again is identity is achieved. Therefore, you have to curate it, you have to craft it, you have to manage it, you have to defend it, and you have to perpetuate it. And one of the main vehicles for this is social, is social media. How much of our identity comes from that entity. Now, I am not here as one of your pastors to rail against the evils of social media. We live in amazing times. Social media is, can be profoundly blessing to us and to other people. But, boy, is it really being distorted and misused. We have entire generations who are being told that the highest value is what other people think about you and say about you. And are you keeping up with that? Are you crafting that? Are you curating that? Are you being seen? Are you being followed? And, and who is following you? And most importantly, what are they saying about you? And are they, are they saying the right things? Are you an influencer? What's your problem? Why, why not? I mean, those are the messages that, that we're getting. And it's really, really important that we understand this and understand what, what God's word is teaching us once again. And it's this. Only Jesus will give you an identity that is not achieved. It is received. And we have a culture that desperately needs to hear that more than ever. And once you understand your true identity, what God says about you, what God, of the God of the universe declares to be true about you and me, it completely changes your life. He then develops that identity, deepens it. How much of the Bible is about identity? God's and ours. Pretty much all of it. Take your sermon notes if you have them and flip them over. These are just a handful of the identity statements in the New Testament about God and about me and about you. This doesn't even include the Old Testament. And this is just a sampling. There's, there's a verse here that isn't even captured. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's go back to the beginning of that. There are three identity statements that will change your life in that verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, God chose you. God chose me. You may think you chose him. He chose you first. He chose me. I am holy. I am set apart for right relationship, special relationship with him and others. I am, I am holy. And I am dearly loved. It's not that I first love God. It's that God, despite my brokenness and selfishness and sinfulness, and the fact that I wear plaid shirts and I'm wearing a solid one for you just here this morning, <laughs> he still loves me. Even in plaid, even in solid colors, right? But it's true. Those are life-changing identity statements. And it's not just about our identity. It's, it's about our whole life. You want to see how to live your life? You look at Jesus. John says this, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And that's a mind-blowing statement. It's huge. Because if you look at the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on men and women to accomplish, to enable, you know, what they needed to do. And then he, more, more often than not, he would leave. The Spirit came and went. It says here that the Spirit came and remained on Jesus. 
That had never happened before. That's, that's huge. He is our spirit-filled example. And by the way, so we're all on the same page. When we talk about the spirit of God, he's not Casper the ghost. He's not an entity. He's not an it. He is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God himself comes and lives within us, which is mind-blowing as well and hugely practical. Do you know how to live your life? Any of your relationships complicated? Ever come to a point in a relationship where you don't know what to do? Think Jesus provides some example for us in that? Yeah. You want purpose in your life? Joy? Hope? Resiliency? Perseverance? Love? Who's going to show you how to do that? Jesus will. Because he's God. You want to see how to live your life? You want to see how to receive and experience the things that we tend to look for in sinful and selfish and broken places? You, you, you look to Jesus. He's our spirit-filled example. But there's even more. John goes on to say that the spirit came and remained upon him but then he's going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit, which is another life changer and game changer. Because the reality is, because of Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, because he gives the Holy Spirit to us when we choose to follow him, receive him into our lives, he will never leave you. He moves in and he never moves out. Oh, sure, you can ignore him. You can quench him as Scripture describes, you can um, try to not listen to him, but he never leaves. Ever. And my friends, we are the only worldview, if you want to call us a religion, the only religion that teaches that the God of the universe himself wants to get so close to you, wants to have such an intimate relationship with you, that he will come and live literally inside of you through his Holy Spirit. That's our side of the street. No one else teaches that reality. And it's true. And it changes our lives. He gives the Spirit. Because, once again, of what John says. He's God's chosen one. And isn't this interesting, once again? I, I realized this in my own journey with the Lord some years ago. But I again began to see this word no an awful lot. And I began to look through, especially in the New Testament, how often does it describe our relationship with God as a knowing relationship? And it's over and over and over again. John later on in this very gospel will say in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that's more than just an intellectual, conceptual knowledge of God, that's an intimate growing relationship with God that that no is talking about. And what does John say here? Once again, right relationship with God is all about knowing him as your God, not a God, but the God and your God, because he is God. 
Jesus is the Son of God. We did business with this last week with Gary's sermon. I strongly encourage you, if you weren't here or you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go podcast that or watch it off our website because we really talk about there the significance of what does it mean that he's the right, that he is um, the son of, son of God. And you know what's so cool about this God is he wants you to know him. In fact, no one wants him, no one, let me say it this way, no one wants you to know him more than he does. Do you believe that? Isn't the entire Bible about a God in pursuit of us, revealing himself to us, calling us back to right relationship with him and others? You know, this morning, just for fun, as I was getting ready to um, do business with this passage together, I went back and looked at all the resurrection accounts, so all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looked at what Jesus was doing. And do you know what Jesus was doing on the morning of his resurrection? Over and over and over again, sometimes individually, sometimes with groups, he was going to people, giving them what they needed to believe in him, to know him. Now again, there's probably a number of spiritual journeys represented in a gathering this size. A number of you know and love Jesus, that is epic and awesome. But there are probably some of you who, to your credit, you're asking questions, you're weighing things out, but in your heart of hearts, you know you're not there yet. So when is the last time in your spiritual journey, for all of us really, you asked God to help you know him better? To help you get him, understand him, experience him. Do you realize God loves to answer that kind of prayer? No one wants you to know him more than he does. And you need his help to believe. The starting place for belief is to admit you don't. That's where everybody starts. And then you ask for his help and you need his help to believe and he wants to give that help to you because again of who he is. And, and this is, I probably am under going to represent the significance of what John said here. To the Jewish listeners to this, to the crowd that was gathered there who were earshot of his words, they just had to go, are you serious? Because in one line, he just summarized the entire Bible. Look, the Lamb of God. If you had to choose one word to describe the Bible, what would it be? Redemption. The Bible is about redemption. The Bible is about a God who is going to redeem and restore and renew and repair things to what he always intended them to be. If we go back to the very book of beginnings in Genesis, we see that the world is the way God always intended it to be. There are no Hurricane Ians. There is no racism. There is no sin. There is no hatred. There is no war. You go down the list. No disease, no death. And Adam and Eve representing us as humanity, they choose to identify separate of God. They choose to decide what they're going to do with their lives. They're going to determine what's right and wrong. They'll direct their own lives. Thank you very much. Sin enters the world. And with it comes death and disease and disasters and, and difficulty and heartache and loss and sin. And at that point, God enacts the divine rescue mission. And in that very passage where all this is being talked about. In Genesis 3, he says that one will come who is going to restore and redeem and renew and repair everything to what it was always intended to be, and he will be the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one. And John says, there he is. 
That's him. He's, he's the Lamb of God. Which means he's going to be the sacrifice. Which to many of us means, meh. Because we don't really have a frame of reference for that. But what is the entire Old Testament about? It's about redemption and ultimately sacrifice, right? In Exodus chapter 12, and this is historical fact. This isn't just Bible. History tells us in Exodus 12, after 430 years of captivity and subjugation to the Egyptians, God freed the Jewish nation through a series of plagues and miracles. And the final one was, if you'll remember with me, in Exodus 12, the death of the firstborn. So the firstborn animal and the firstborn of every family were, would die that night. And he instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb, to kill a lamb, put its blood on the doorframe, and then when it doesn't talk about the angel of death, it describes him as the destroyer there, but when, when that entity passed over, any household did not have blood on the doorposts, the firstborn would die. And the ones that did, the angel of death would pass over. A picture of someday what was going to come. When the one true lamb would be sacrificed and would offer salvation to everybody who received it and responded to it. And so, the Jewish nation and Jewish folks to this day still practice the Passover annually to remember what happened in Exodus. But there was also another significant day. It's called the Day of Atonement, where the priest would gather the entire nation. They'd take two lambs, or really two goats, and one goat would be sacrificed for the sins of everybody. And the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on the goat's head and he would transfer symbolically all of the sin and, and, and truly all the sin of the people. And then they would release that goat into the wild and it was called the scapegoat, which is where we get that word in our language. The scapegoat would remove the sin from the community. So sin was paid for with one goat, sin was removed with the other, pointing to a day when the Lamb of God would come and would do both because he was the Lamb of God. And then the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to this day. So once again, as you enter the story of me, can you imagine what they were thinking when John said, there he is, the Lamb of God? Right? It's, it's life-changing reality. But sometimes we hear about, you know, this and we think, okay, sacrifice. And especially for those of us, I think, who have known the Lord for some time and been in church community for some time, sometimes we can, we can gloss over this or go by it and not let the reality of what this amazing God has done for us sink in. When we're done here in just a little while, there may be some of you who choose to go to downtown Gresham, get some more coffee. You can never have enough coffee or, you know, go to, go to lunch, whatever. Let's just say that's what you're going to do. You're going to head down to Gresham, downtown Gresham after this. And you're walking along and a car goes by and um, some words are exchanged with the people in the car and it goes south real quick and someone gets out of the car and they pull a gun and the person you're with steps in front of you and more words are exchanged and then there's a shot fired and they lose their life because they stepped in front of you. And so by losing their life, they now have given you life. And there are so many more dimensions to this reality than a story about a shooting in Gresham. Now imagine that person who was with you was your enemy. Not because 
they're your enemy, but you're theirs. Because that's where we all start out in our sinfulness. We all start out as enemies of God. He's not our enemy. We've made him ours. Even the duck gets it. <laughs> and so, but do you understand? Do I understand the significance of this? Do, do we know what it means that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus sacrificed himself for us? In all of our sinfulness, in all of our selfishness, in all of our shame and our guilt, all the things that we wish no one ever knew about us, God knows, and he offers to remove those things from us and in its place give us his power for right living with him and with other people. You responded to that? That's not just a theology. That's not just a thought. That is a reality that goes to the core of your identity. And it starts by receiving this God into your life. And so we're going to celebrate and remember all the rich realities and symbolism of what we've talked about here with communion. So I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward. And this is what we're going to ask you to do. Would you come forward and receive these almonds, some juice and some cracker? This represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And you'll take those elements back to your chair and hold on to them because we're going to take this and celebrate communion together. And as you do so, as you come forward, make your movement reflect the movement of your life and heart. Make this an act of worship in that if you know and love Jesus, you all over again are saying, Jesus, I love you and I want to know you even more and I'm going to trust and obey you and follow you with my life. Make it mean that. And there probably are some of you here, you're not ready to make that commitment, that choice yet. That's okay. To your credit, you're here. But if you're ready to make that choice, I can think of no better time than just between you and God as you come forward say, I, I want to know you. Man, I, I want you in my life. Because communion doesn't take any meaning if that's not true. It's just cracker and juice. But for those of us who know and love Jesus, this reminds us of our identity and what he's done for us. So would you do that? Come forward, receive those elements, and then we'll take communion together in just a little bit. Do you believe that? What you just sung? I believe that you do. And we help one another live out what he has done for us in community. And so we have some prayer teams that have stepped forward. We would love to pray with you. We believe in the power of prayer. We've experienced the power of prayer. If there's anything that we can pray for you about, we would love to do that. Please don't be shy or hesitate. Come forward. And if you do, you know what people will think? Yeah, they need prayer just like I do. That's what we do here. So please take advantage of that. Those of you who are guests, once again, welcome. We really are glad that you're with us. Right around the corner is our cafe, and we would love to invite you to go to that. We have some folks gathered in the back. I'm as part of our Next Steps team. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to buy you a free drink. And uh, if you brought someone as a guest this morning, man, take them there, and you buy them a drink. But <laughs> we're really glad, though, truly, that you are with us. Galatians 2.20 in the New Testament says this. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
You know what that is? That's my identity. And it's yours. So let me pray his blessing over us as we go from here. Lord, this world desperately needs to know that our true identity is found in you. And so we ask that you will put people in our path as we walk out these doors, as we go into the rest of our week, who we can tell about you, love in your name, serve in your name, that they would know the one true God the way we do. Lord, thank you so much for how you've blessed us, for what you've given to us. Thank you that you are worthy, and you are. And we will worship you and live for you as a result. And we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So go live for him. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.